I've been told that sometimes I don't speak up. Uh-oh. And I've been told that sometimes I don't speak up at inopportune times. I turn my head away and I speak with the lower volume. So you all would do me a great favor. If that happens, say what? And I don't mind. Okay? It'll be my bad. You'll be helping me out because I, I don't want anybody to not be able to hear me. Okay, so we're going to have a slideshow uh, presentation. Part of part of it is going to I'm going to use this as what a tool. We're on the subject, continuing the subject of last week, glorifying God. So we have to ask ourselves a question: How do we glorify God? What is it to glorify God? Okay, and of course we look at two different perspectives: if you don't know the Lord, and then if you do know the Lord. So we'll start with taking our example from creation. We're going to look at creation and say, well, how does creation glorify God? Okay, so we have a verse to put up here, Psalm 19. Oh, i got to start this thing off. This is my first time, so I'll get the hang of it. There we go. You guys can cover for me in case I blow it. Thanks. (laughs) The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. What's that mean? Well, here in the Bay Area, it might not strike you as awesome as it might if you go to a dark corner of the world. I can remember when I was in Brazil, in the north of Brazil, in the Amazon River. It was 40 miles across where we, were, where we lived. And you go out on the river about an hour or two, and there's no light at all. They don't have power lines going across the river. If you go out the remotest part, there might be kerosene lamps. But my favorite uh, thing to do on the trip back was to climb up on top of the boat, And they usually always had a tire up there for some reason. And I'd lay down and I'd look at the stars. And it was nice and cool in the equatorial region. It's pretty hot during the daytime. But I looked at the stars. And the amazing thing about it is I didn't recognize any of them. And it's not because I was in Brazil. It's just they're drowned out by so many other stars. Here you go out at night. I was looking, I think the night before last, I was looking. Oh, there's the Big Dipper. It's right there, plain as day. But you go up like even to Humboldt County or Yosemite sometimes at night, and you try to find the Big Dipper. You don't know what your way around stars. It's not so easy because there's so many stars out there. And as we learn more about the, the stellar heavens, the bodies out there, it's remarkable. It's remarkable how God's glory is displayed in what he's created. When we think of the immense distances and the weight and all of the planets, the size of the stars. They really glorify God. They tell of His glory, don't they? So we see it in creation, in the physical creation. We also see it in the, uh, the earth, you know, uh, plants and animals. So when I think of plants... Um, wait a minute, i got to start advancing this thing here. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God made creation, it was perfect. You know, God says very good. To us, that means perfect. 
Everything was perfect. Now, we don't see it that way now, but the way he created it was, indeed, was perfect. And we're going to think a little bit, man, was man perfect when he was first created? When I first thought of that, I thought, well, I can think of ways in which it could be improved. (laughs) Blasphemy, right? But I wasn't thinking of the right idea of what perfection is and what perfect is, right? Man was perfect the way God made him, for God's design, for God's purpose. For example, how many people in this room feel a little bit independent? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few people out there. Are you? We're, we're created dependent creatures. We're dependent on a lot of things. Water, food, shelter. You know, when you get a little older, you don't like to admit it, you even have some emotional needs. <laughs> you know. um, spiritual needs. God made us dependent creatures. So somebody say, well, that's not perfect. A perfect person, perfect creation would be independent. No, 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 no. That's how God wanted it and for a reason. He made everything according to his design. And he said, that's very good. That's a pretty high appraisal when it comes from God. Okay, plants, plants. We think of plants. You think of the, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but we work hand in hand plants and animals, right? Ecosystem or what, what do you call that? Huh? Am I right? Correct me if I'm wrong here. Okay, so plants. What's so good about plants? Well, we got they make their own food. That's unusual. I had to learn that in school, right? Um, they can take light, the nourishment they get out of the soil, or whatever, and they can turn it into food for themselves. I wish we could make food for ourselves, but guess what? God didn't design us to make food for ourselves. He designed the plants to do that and to our benefit. They take in CO2. And they turn it around into oxygen. And I'm simplifying that probably because I don't understand the whole process. But that's all right. They provide what we need and we provide what they need. Isn't that a wonderful dynamic? The way God created that? So they're dependent on us and we're dependent on them. Created independence. I put this tree up here because it's a fascinating tree. Anybody see this tree before um, besides Johnio and Megan? <laughs> it's called an autocadia. And it's unique to the state that I lived in Brazil, Paraná. And when you think of that, it's a, it's a type of a pine tree. But those branches go out, I mean, anywhere from 20 to 40 feet. Like an umbrella turned upside down. And they put out these clusters of seeds. Pin, pin, what do they call Janio? Piña. Is that the seed or the cluster? Cluster is called a piña. And Pinero is the seed. Okay. So um, these trees only grow around that region. And they, they, they take a long time to grow. The trunks can be upwards of two meters, six, seven feet in diameter. And it's all clean wood. Clean wood. Particularly useful for starting fires because when the, the branches die and, and they, they, uh, they dry out on the ground, you gather and you light a match to them, it's almost like they've been doused with kerosene or something. They just flame on. Really handy. But, you know, it's interesting how God made the plants and animals to work together. Here we have what's called a gralia azul. Okay? Every creature is uniquely made, unique abilities. And this bird, you notice what he has in his beak? He has a piñero. Not a piñero. What's that called? Piñon? 
pinyon. He's got a seed to one of these trees. It's a special seed, goes to the tree, and this bird, for some reason, likes this seed, takes this seed, and he plants it. He's the planter of the autocadias. And that's how they disseminated throughout the state. And there's a legend that goes with it. Um, that he didn't always have blue feathers and God rewarded him for his diligence and gave him bright blue colors. But he's called a Gralia Azul. It stands pretty tall. And so where you see, see those birds, you, you have a real illustration of God making plants and animals work together, one dependent on the other. Gralia Azul get its food, it's eat part of the seed, and then he'd plant the rest. And then God gave him this, sort of like me, he gave him this amazing ability to forget what he did and where he put things. So, so he forgot where the seed was, so he goes and gets another one, eats a little bit, and he goes plants that. Now, if he remembered where the seeds were, we wouldn't have so, much, so many trees. So isn't that marvelous how God does that? Special abilities, unique, uniquely made, unique abilities that the animals have. Now, I'm going to go through some of these things you might know, some you might not, but they're interesting, and they're sort of to highlight the uniqueness of some of the animals that we have Perhaps you didn't know. And there's, there's hundreds of them. But I just wanted to highlight a few here. This owl. Okay? Owls have facial feathers. You know, pretty design around their eyes. And they're arranged to pick up minuscule sounds from up to 75 feet away. So you ever hear one of those things you put up to your ears? What are they called? Megaphones where you can hear? His whole face is a megaphone. <laughs> it picks up the sounds up to 75. Little little rodent scratching around 75 feet away picks it up. Because God gave him facial hairs, and that distinct look of his face is designed. That's one reason why it's designed that way. Isn't that interesting? Declares the glory of God. Okay, what's this? Yeah, they're not pretty creatures. Not pretty creatures at all, but they emit a protein that can neutralize nearly all poisons introduced into their system, into their bodies. So they're, at least by poisons, they're pretty invincible. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know. But they're not pretty creatures, but they get this unique ability. Okay. I didn't know that about apostles. Salamanders. Salamanders, they have this special adhesive on the bottom of their feet that they'll allow them to stick to vertical and horizontal upside-down surfaces. And the amazing thing is that they don't leave it behind. <laughs> it go, it, they pick it up with them and go, almost like suction cups, but it's an adhesive. Did you know this about hippos, that they secrete their own sunscreen? That makes sense. Where they live, it's probably pretty hot. I wish I could do that sometimes. Not all the times, mind you, but, you know, <laughs> you don't have to worry about that forgetful memory with the sunscreen. It comes out like, like blood. It's these red droplets that secreted on it from, by his skin and drips down and gives him a natural sunscreen. How many animals do you know can do that? That's the way God made them. And there's a purpose to it. Isn't that great how God thinks of all the details? Do you know this about sea cucumbers? They can turn themselves into liquid form (laughs) and then return again? I'm sure there's a purpose for that. I just don't know what it is. Okay, the wood frog. His blood's sort of like antifreeze. He can freeze up during the wintertime and then thaw back out in the summer. So he's not going to die in the wintertime. So God made his blood like antifreeze. Isn't that amazing? See, God takes care of even little frogs through harsh winters. Okay, humpback whales. They can actually fish with a net of bubbles. And that forces all the fish, like maybe a school of fish, to 
be gathered together, and he just goes up and takes a bite. Isn't that amazing? This bird right here, the lyre bird, can mimic just about any sound. Just about even machinery. <laughs> uh, how about a rhino- uh, rhinoceros beetle carry up to 850 times its weight? How much do you weigh? I mean, you don't have to answer that. <laughs> but that would represent a substantial sum for me to pick up 850 times my weight and just walk away with it. Isn't that amazing? Okay, the limbs on a salamander. They can regrow limbs like a starfish. You know that? It's amazing. Even organs. And I hate to mention this guy, but he's a dung beetle. And he uses the moon and the stars to navigate, to push that dung ball in a straight line wherever he wants to go. It's, I mean, it's like straight line destination. So he knows a little bit about navigation. Who taught him that? And these are just some, the sloth. Rather slow movers, but they heal up quite well. They could survive even serious injuries. That's the way God made them. Maybe they don't have time to get out of the way of an oncoming accident. So God just gave them the ability to heal from it real quick. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be nice if we had some of these properties? I mean, some of them, not all of them. Heal up quickly. Grow back an arm when I lose it. That would be quite handy. Are we not perfect because we don't have that? What's up? Yeah, you wish you yeah, yeah. heal up fast, you know. Now, we're not, it's not that we're not perfect because we don't have. God didn't design us to have those abilities. He has a different design for us. But for them, pretty handy. Okay. What do all those creatures have in common? Every single one of them. Think about that. What do they have in common? Pardon? Perfect? Purpose. They have, what's their purpose? Each one has a different purpose? Okay. But there's something in common between all of them. Yeah. They, they have the same creator. Andy? Very good. And how do we glorify God? Every one of these creatures that I showed you, you know what they're doing? They're doing, like what I, they're doing exactly what God designed them to do. God gave them unique abilities. right? They are unique. And yet each one of them, the Graya, Azul, even that dung beetle, they're all doing what God designed them to do. So the question is, how do we glorify God? The, questions, the answer to the question is the same. The answer is the same. Okay? We do what God designed us to do. Then we glorify God. So we have to ask ourselves... Uh, each one of these crea- the, the, the creatures are unique, right? They have a special ability. So what's man's special ability and how is he unique? Because if we answer that question, then we can get an idea. Well, what, what did God create us to do? See, man's different than all the creatures. There's something unique about him. And there's a reason why he's unique. Because he has a purpose that's different than the purpose of all those other ones. There is a similarity. We're all here to glorify God, obviously. But there's a purpose. What is it? What is it? God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image according to our likeness. God made man. It's not said of any other creatures, not even angels, that they're made in the likeness of God. So that's unique, isn't it? Doesn't, all those other creatures, doesn't say that about them, but man it does. When I say man, let's talk about men and women. 
right? Why is that important? Is that a clue? What he designed us to do? It's a key word. He made us to have a relationship with himself. A very special relationship. That's why he made us in the likeness of himself. So that we can have a personal relationship with him. Not just a star following, you know, or a planet orbiting around a star. Uh, stars moving through the galaxies. Galaxies moving through the universe. And all the physical laws that they obey. That's not very personal, is it? You know? The creatures, I mean, rolling a dung ball. That's not, I mean, I don't know what that has to do with a relationship. But man, he created for a relationship with himself. He created us to have a relationship with himself. So the question is, if we're doing what he designed us to do, does that glorify him? It does. It does. Now, take that gralia azul. He's finding those seeds, right? And he's eating a little bit. And then he's planting the rest, hiding it for a future day that I'll never remember. So we'll have to get another one. Do you think he's unhappy? I mean, we're speaking in human terms, but do you think he's, oh, no, I've got to go find another seed. I've got to eat this stuff. I'm tired of it. No, he's singing. He's happy. Right? Those creatures, they're doing what they designed to, were designed to do. They're not unhappy. If you could put it in those terms on their level. So what, I want to ask you this. Knowing God and having a relationship with him, would that be something that you think God would design unhappiness into the equation? <laughs> and yet people think that. People think that. Since for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that why? He might bring us to God. See, the Bible tells the story of man that was created perfect to have a relationship with God, and he did. Said that God walked in the garden with him in the cool of the day. They conversed. They did all the things that's involved in a relationship. All up until Adam basically said by his actions, I don't want a relationship with you anymore. <laughs> I'd rather have one with her. And then there was a problem, sin. But that didn't change God's design, and it didn't catch him by surprise. You see, he made Provisions even for that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that came down from heaven, took our sins in his body on the cross so that he could bring us to God and be accepted by him, holy and righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So he's made provision even for that. But the goal is that we might be brought to God, have a relationship with him. This is what Jesus said to the Father, and it gives us a clue into what it is to glorify God. It says, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. How did Jesus glorify God? By doing what the Father sent him here to do. And that's to secure our salvation. To take our sins in his body, die on the cross in our place, so that the Father could forgive us in a righteous and just way. He did that. It says, you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That's why Jesus came. That he might give us eternal life. And this is eternal life. What is it? That they may know God. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's why Jesus came. 
That's why God created us, that we might know Him. And then once we enter into this, the rest of life is a progression in getting to know God. And that should thrill our hearts. We should be like the birds singing out there in springtime, happy as the days go by. We're also, once we come into that relationship by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, we're made part of the body of Christ. So there's a new, new dynamics here. Now there's the family of God. And we're members. Members in the body of Christ. Made part of His body. It says we are members of His body. We are members of one another. So now we have a new relationship with God. New relationship with one another. The family of God. And so how do we glorify God? Relationship with Him and with the family of God. And I have a story uh, at the end that I want to talk to you about. It really illustrates some things I learned this last three days. I went to um, Sacramento and I had to do some training, OSHA 502. And I was in a room with a bunch of uh, consultants for insurance companies. And a couple people in training... And there's this one person, he worked for a large company, I forget what it was called, NPV or NVP or something like that. But I always get a little nervous when I tell a story when there's expert on the subject in the room, you know. If it wasn't for the fact that I don't mind making mistakes quite often. Bob, you're the expert on this subject, you'll see what I mean after I get to my story. Okay, so, this is the guy. You recognize his name? Anybody? This is what I learned, and I want to share this with you, and it's through this story, um, Safety on the Job Site. This guy has a unique story, but but I thought we'd be concentrating on one thing. We concentrated on another, and it has to do with relationships. It has to do with how, really, our lives are part of one another, and what we do doesn't just affect us. It affects others in our orb, you know? in our sphere of influence, in our relationships, our friends, our circle. And so we're going to look at this guy and uh, see what happened to him and see if we can see those points. First of all, this guy worked um, in the area of trenching, laying pipe. And there's some safety rules uh, involved in, in trench digging. Bob, you're probably aware of all this stuff. The 245, I, the first time I learned it was called 245. When you dig a trench, first of all, the dangers of trench. Do you know two people die every month in the United States? Trench-related accidents, and most of them are from cave-ins. So that should make you think when you send your teenage kids to the beach with a shovel. Yeah, it could be deadly. It really can. So there's rules that um, OSHA has come up with on the job site to protect workers that are required to do this work. But they don't protect people going out and doing things on their own. And not everybody knows about the dangers in, uh, in trenches. And, and everybody has an idea what trench is. A trench is, right? There's some definition, but the idea is you're digging a narrow cavity in the ground with vertical slopes. And because of the dangers, because two, two people die every month, there's some pretty stringent requirements, but they're only if you follow them. One of them is that the spoils have to be two feet away from the trench. Spoils mean when you're digging the dirt out and put it on the side, you can't just put it right next to you. You've got to clear it at least by two feet. Why? So the dirt doesn't fall back in on you. Okay. Four feet. When you get to the level of four feet deep, there's two main requirements. One is access 
and exit, egress, ingress. You have to put either stairs or ladders away in or out of the trench, and they have to be no space. You have to be within 25 feet of one of those at all times. You also, and this is very important, you have to test the air. Might be insufficient oxygen in the trench, might be toxic fumes. You have to have the air tested. That's the, the limit, four feet. And then at five feet, you have to provide some kind of protection from cave-ins. Either benching, where you cut the soil back in like terraces, or slope, or shoring, where you're actually shoring up the sides, or uh, trench boxes, where you put that down in the hole and you drag that along as you dig your trench, and the workers are working inside the trench box. Because the danger of cave-ins is extremely uh, high, high danger of it, and uh, it's something you can't do anything about, and it happens so quickly. And if you get there's there's one, I think in Washington, an actual cave-in where the ocean inspector arrived on site and said, wait a minute, what are you guys doing? Right when he arrived, there was a cave-in. Fortunately, the guy jumped to a pipe and avoided it all, but most people that are involved in cave-ins where they're under the soil, they don't survive. This guy did, and his name's Eric. Um, Eric, I think you say his name, Geiger. Eric Geiger. And in 2002 it happened. And it was the fall, upstate New York. Um, and I got to listen or listen to or watch a presentation that he did that I wasn't about to bring to you to see because it cost $500. <laughs> I'll just tell you the story, but I got to hear it. Because this guy that worked at this company, he had it. And he showed it to us. And it, it leaves an impression on you. He's 27 years old. 27 years old, he was married six days before. And they're laying pipe, and they have a backhoe in the front, digging the trench, backhoe behind, filling it in, and a crew in the mill, just him and another guy, laying the pipe, joining it together. And I don't, I don't know all the details about how you do that. Not my area, but it was just, it was under four foot of soil. And then it just started for, and these guys were laying day in, day out. He said they were laying anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 feet a day. Does that sound reasonable? And so it was their regular job, day in, day out, day in, week in, week in, week in, week out. They were a couple of months on the job. And, you know, the limits that we gave you, two, four, and five, he, was, he wasn't required to have any kind of safety uh, considerations at that level, just under four feet. But then when it got up to four feet, it, it might have been 2,000 feet down the road. And they're comfortable doing their job. And, and one thing I want you to do as I'm telling this story is relate it to the spiritual area of life in the body. Because the, uh, the accident really represents sin. And the ignoring of the safety guidelines really represents a lack of... Um, lack of vigilance in guarding against sin, not only for ourselves, but those in the body and what the results might be and how it affects not just that one person. And that's what his major emphasis was. This isn't just affect me. It doesn't just affect my family. And it, give, it, it caused me to think in a way I never thought before about the effects of not only safety on the job site, but sin in the body. And when I say sin, it could be just as simple as, something as simple as being discouraged. It could mean loosening your vigilance in, in one area or another, um, whether it be among the young people, whether it might be among older people, wherever. Um, we are all responsible 
to watch out not only for ourselves, but one another. One another. And when we see someone heading for danger, or we see someone too close to a leading edge, that's when we should step in and help. Bring back into safer parameters, if you will. So he was... uh, in, he, was, he was laying the pipe, and what they did is they struck uh, one of those clay drain pipes. And water started filling on the bottom. Oh, by the way, he worked from four feet, one month, two months go by, four and a half, five feet, five and a half. And by the time where this accident happened, he was in six and a half feet, a six and a half foot deep trench. Now, at that time, there's all kinds of safety cards, but because they got comfortable... And because they, they thought, well, everything's going okay, so far so good, they really um, lowered their guard. And it wasn't just Eric. It wasn't just his partner. It was, it was the backhoe operators, both of them. It was the supervisor that was a competent person that was on site. It was a whole crew. Now, this is his family on a work site. <laughs> You're working in and out. You know how close you can get on a job site. These, these are like your family members. And each one of them recognized, hey, wait a minute. We're on the other side of the line where we're supposed to do things. But they got comfortable. So they hit this clay pipe and water started coming into the trench. And it was only maybe 10, 15 gallons. You know. And so one of his partner jumped out of the trench to go get some, either, either splices or something they used to fix that. While he started clearing each side of the pipe. And no sooner than 30 seconds after his partner jumps out of the, the trench... He saw right out of his corner of his eye, he saw some movement, and it caught him and just slammed him down into the trench, and it was a cave-in. Engulfment, they call it. And he explained what it was like going through that. He was totally, 100% helpless. In the dark, totally covered. And they say when that hits, it's like 70-mile-an-hour truck hitting you. And that's about 2,000 pounds hitting you all at once, the weight of it. And so now he's struggling with every muscle he has to try to break loose. And he's hoping to hear either machinery from one of the backhoes or, or a co-worker. Yet he hears nothing. And he sees nothing. And as he exhales to take another breath, the dirt fills in the gap and crushes his lungs. And he is struggling so hard that he bursts just about every, every surface uh, capillary or blood vessel in his eyes. Couldn't see couldn't hear anything, pitch dark, struggling. And they, they figured he was conscious for about a minute. So that's the situation he's in. He can't help himself. He's in the dark. He can't move. And it comes in, I'm going to die. Right here in this trench, I'm going to die. And that's what was going through his mind. That's what he said. So that's his situation. Now, fortunately, his coworker heard him because he gave out a yelp before that, you know, as, as he was being buried. He gave out a yelp and his friend came back. And he was in a six and a half foot trench and he had at least two feet of dirt on top of him. So now, now the workers have to make a decision. First, they called 911. So there was a deputy sheriff within like three blocks of the place. When he drove up, he knew it was a fatality. So he just got out of his camera and started taking pictures taking pictures. They're figuring out what to do. So they had to figure out what to do. What do we do? Do we dig him out with a shovel? Probably 98% chance of finding him dead at that point because it takes too long to get him out. He can't breathe. 
They figure he was buried in that trench for about 10 minutes. Or, what's the other possibility? Bob? Backhoe. Now realize what you're asking this backhoe operator to do. Is he comfortable flying blind like that, taking a chunk of earth out that could easily cut this guy in half? Or does he say no, knowing that to say no means the sure death of his friend and coworker? He should never be placed in this position to have to make that decision. But he is. Or does he take a chunk of earth trying to get some earth on top of him and then he bring up a limb or a half a body? Then he's got to live with that for the rest of his life. That's not a very good prospect, is it? Is it? And so when we take lightly the warnings the Lord gives us, what are we putting other people through that have to deal with the fallout sometimes? Sometimes we don't think of these people. So... Back who operator decides to take a shot at it. Pulls a couple feet off, off of him, of dirt off of him. And fortunately, he doesn't hit him. And then they're digging him out with shovels, and they're able to expose the body. Well, when they expose the body, no pulse, blue, mouth filled with dirt. I mean, in there. So they, by that time, the EMTs arrive, and they one, one of the workers is trying to get him CPR. While he was still half buried, they just got his chest out, exposed. And they shock him, and they got a detectable rhythm, very faint. They get him on life support, and they fly him out of there. Okay, so now, think of what else went on to get him out of there. This is a very zoomed-in picture. My picture that I saw had eight people in that trench. Eight people trying to get him out. That's eight people that could have succumbed to the same thing that he's... That trench is not a respecter of persons. When it goes, it can trap all eight. And they're not like, oh, we got eight people. That's stronger. No, 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 no. That takes eight people down. So they're risking their lives to help out him. All because of every person on the crew knew that they were in an unsafe situation. Nobody said anything. If somebody had said something, it would have never happened. And so what does that make me think of? That makes me think of the body of Christ, you know. Sometimes we're so afraid to say things. We're so afraid of offending someone. We're so afraid to what we might look like that we don't say things. When somebody's discouraged, when somebody's walking a little bit too close to the line, you know. Um, when you see things going on that you, oh, wow, I wonder this, I wonder that. Why don't we say things? <laughs> Why don't we say anything? Love dictates that we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know? And the biggest effect this presentation has on workers is they're going to start saying something now. Because <laughs> we know what's safe and what's not. You can't predict everything. But when we have guidelines and we don't follow them because either, oh, I don't want to appear like I'm real conservative. conservative. I don't want to appear that I'm afraid of stuff. That's when we get in danger. And that's not when we're glorifying God. Because God brought us together for a reason. <laughs> spiritual growth. Maturity. Protection. We're in a spiritual war. And we see casualties all the time. But I think if we took the warfare a little more seriously, I think if we watched out for the signs that he told us to watch out for, the dangers of sin, and we weren't afraid to speak up, I, I can't help but think that we might have a little bit more survivors. 
from sin in our midst. So these people put their uh, lives on the line. So they got him to the hospital. That wasn't the end of the story. Um, that was just the beginning. They had to put him into an uh, induced coma after he revived because he was so combative. As he was coming to, he thought he was still in the trench. He thought he was still covered with dirt. He couldn't see. And he was fighting just as urgently that he was in the hole, buried by dirt. And so they put him back, induced him again, and put him back in the coma. And then they had to call the family members. I think three or four family members. They called him down. Listen, what we want to do is slowly bring him out of his coma, and you need to talk to him and calm him down because he's really violently um, aggressive as he's coming to. So now his family has to come in to see this. And, and when they came in and saw him, he was bloated to twice his normal size. Eyes were all bloodshot. Um, the amazing thing about it was... The guy, and they, and they told him, oh, by the way, we don't expect him to survive. And if he does survive, he's going to be brain damaged, a vegetable. That's what the doctors told the family members. Now, this is a woman that just married him six days before. They were supposed to leave that night for their honeymoon. Now this. So, remarkable thing that within a week, he walked out of that hospital. He thinks he's a walking miracle, and I'd have to agree with him. So he goes home, and he's all beat up, sore. I mean, his, his ribs are broken. Um, his eyes are bloodshot. He's got cuts from the shovel on him. And he just wants to go to sleep because he's so tired. They take him into the bedroom. And then they turn the light off, and he starts shivering and sweating, and, and he can't stop it. He's afraid to be in the dark. Why? He was, in dark. he was in the dark in the trench. You see, these things leave scars. Even to this day, he can't be in the dark. And then so they looked, took the light on, and then they put covers over him, and no sooner did they do that, same thing happened. He couldn't stand to have a cover on him. Why? Because he was covered for that terrifying time. And then when he could fall asleep, he averages right now three hours a night of sleep. When he does, he has nightmares. It all comes back to him. All comes back to him. Tragedy. Changed his whole life. He had to go through two years of therapy. Part of his therapy was this, I guess it's psychiatrist, taking him into a dark room, sitting him down there with him and talking him through, turning the lights off and keeping it off for longer and longer periods of time. It was terrifying for him. To this day, he can't go in a swim pool. He can't go swimming. He used to enjoy swimming. He can't swim. It has an effect on you. His marriage didn't stand the stress. They ended up separating, divorcing. All because they didn't pay attention to the warning signs. <laughs> but one nice thing about it is that he did have people that cared for him. And you know what he does now? He's very successful at going around as a motivational speaker, talking to people about avoiding the dangers we already know about. <laughs> And speaking up and saying something. Would that every time that we have a failure, that we'd be humble enough to be used of the Lord to go around and tell people. That's a dead end road. That's not a good road to go down. How do we glorify God? By sticking together. By looking out after one another. When someone falls, we help them up. When someone's hurting, we're there. 
The marvelous thing about it with God, there's no ending like this. God could restore the years the locusts have eaten. Sometimes people need to be reminded of that. God could take every circumstance in our life and turn it around and use it for good and teach us more about himself through the process. And yet so many times, you know, uh, like this guy, he's embarrassed to go back. Well, he got over that. We need to go get over being embarrassed. We need to share more of our lives. And I think if we did, we'd be a lot safer people. We'd be a lot closer to God, and God would be glorified. And, that, and, and I got a fresh look at how, how much our lives really affect those around us. Sometimes we think we're alone. I know it won't hurt anyone. Nobody will. You know what? Have you ever thought, you know, and I started thinking about times where I've maybe been discouraged, really tired, and probably to a large degree a little bit lazy, and I think, well, I'll just stay home tonight to a meeting. You know, fortunately, I have someone at home that doesn't want to stay home. Let's go. Okay. You know, and I, and I, and I don't feel good, and I go. And I don't feel good all the way up until probably 10 minutes into the meeting. And then I walk away, man, am I ever glad I came. That was uplifting. That's exactly what I needed. But there was a resistance right up front. Would that all of us would encourage one another to remember that. The place God wants us is the best place for us. He made us dependent and he's given us a family to meet those needs and for us to meet those needs in the lives of others. And so we really need to make people feel that. Let them know that. I, I, and I'm, I, you know, I, I hear, well, an encouraging message. And I'm thinking, would that somebody was here. I'm thinking of somebody that that might have been encouraging too. And then God says, well, why didn't you go invite them? <laughs> you know, and I feel guilty. That's right. Why didn't I go invite them? You know, sometimes we think people don't come because, oh, it's not important to them anymore. Well, sometimes it's because of discouragement. Sometimes it's because they feel nobody understands or nobody cares or they won't miss me. We need to let them know, yeah, we will miss you. We don't understand how important it is that we band together as Christians in the family of God. We don't, we don't understand the far-reaching effects. I think of um, my children. You know, what do I teach them? I teach them a lot by how I live and what I do. I remember my mom one time told me, when I first came to know the Lord, she didn't like it. And um, Sunday after Sunday, I enjoyed going to hear about God and to learn about God. And I wouldn't miss ever. And she says, it was about a year or two into my Christian life, can't you just stay home one Sunday with your mother? (laughs) And I said to her, I'll be glad to stay home with you six days out of the week, but Sunday, I want to spend with the Lord's people. Because I thought about it. You know, she had a point. How important am I to you? That's what she was asking. And I thought to myself, it's more important than you see how important God should be to me and to you. And that's the example I want to leave with you. You know? I have an example of faithfulness in coming to the meetings and faithfulness to what God calls me to do. And I don't claim to that faithfulness, by the way. I don't, I don't claim to be 100% faithful. I'm probably in the lower 50 but I, I know what I should be. And if I am, 
then my effect on other people's lives is going to be more far-reaching than I'll ever know. And so will yours. I can teach either somebody, you know, we, we have, wow, well, you know, that's legalism. No, not if it's out of love, it's not. <laughs> not if it's our a desire to glorify God, it's not. You know? But the example we leave, the love we show, you know, that's what glorifies God. And that's what we should be about, glorifying God. So that we can live, live peaceful and tranquil lives when God allows it. And be safe and secure. And know there's people that care, that care about me. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you care about us. We know that you're, we're your special creatures that you've created to have a personal relationship with yourself. Lord, and what a special privilege that is. To know that you've made provisions to forgive us in a righteous way our sins. You've given us a privilege to be called children of God. And you care for us as a family. We only pray that you would help us care for one another in a manner that glorifies you, that shows the love of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.